Our state-by-state -state look at coronavirus trends is more encouraging this Sunday. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. The wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future at the intersection of self, community, and planet. We live in uncertain times, a powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Auto's reached the transport site. Trying to lock on. Five, four, three, Welcome back, guys. Welcome to the Alt Normal, episode eight. I'm the host, Tiffany Wen. And before we dive into the show and our amazing guest here today, I just want to center us on why we're here and what the show is about. So, first off, if you're new, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. And if you are a regular listener, thanks for coming back um, today. Just Encouraging any and all um, support and love. If you guys want to give a subscribe, review, or share, that's totally welcome. Um, our goal is to really spread these stories far and wide um, and just to amplify the diverse voices that we're so privileged to have on the show. So, The Alt Normal is a show that centers diversity as a critical force for rebuilding this post pandemic world. So it really started with the question, how might we reframe this new normal that we've been handed as crisis and rethink this as the alt normal or an alternative reality that we can actively co-create together in our diversity to build a healthier and more resilient culture? So I don't really have to spell this out, but you know, in this grave moment of crisis, um, economic collapse, racial injustice, all these big things that are blowing up, um, lies this massive opportunity to really shift and course correct the way that we relate to ourselves, but also the way we relate to our communities and the planet. So one thing's for sure, you know, we all have a part to play. No part is too small. And I like to say that we've kind of taken this red pill together and there's no going back. Right, but in the best of ways. So big, big thank you to Zest. Zest is a plant-based restaurant here in Ubud, Bali. Um, and Zest is allowing us to host this show. Their mission is powered by plants made for people. And so they allow us to gather in community, conversation, and also create a vegan dishes um, in this really beautiful oasis of nature. So super grateful to Zest. And without further ado, I'd love to introduce our guest today. It's actually our first male guest, and his name is Melvin Hart. So Melvin, or Mel, is a neuromuscular therapist, LMT and CPT, but those letters are only part of who he is. As a shamanic medicine practitioner and healer, he's had the opportunity to work with hundreds of people from all around the world and help them in their healing and integration process. Melvin's a spiritual nomad who travels around the globe studying and accumulating different tools to bring his own unique perspective on consciousness 
development, shamanism, and integration to people. As part of his training in the world of plant medicine, Melvin has worked with various indigenous shamans. He's worked with numerous dietas in the jungles and mountains of Peru, facilitated and participated in over 100 plant medicine ceremonies, and continues to work with his shamanic coaching clients to integrate their experiences into their everyday lives and offer his intuitive coaching. So I'm really super grateful to have you on the show, Mel. Oh, thank you for having me. And you've had a very dynamic life, and I always love to start these conversations by asking, what is your ethnic and cultural background? Because you've shared with me that you consider yourself kind of this anomaly, um, and you've never really met anyone like yourself. So I'd love to just center us on like who you are, where you come from, how you identify with yourself. Right. So originally, I'm from New York. Right. Ethnically, I am black and Indian. My father is black or my father was black and my mother is Indian. And I grew up with my mother's side of the family. So I was raised in a traditional Hindu household on Long Island, New York, in the 80s in a predominantly white, lower, mid to lower class neighborhood. So how I identify myself first is as a human and as a man, then as Melvin who just happens to be black and Indian, right? I'm not, I find like in the words of Soren Kierkegaard, right? To label me is to negate me. And when we begin to define or label or name something, we limit its capacity because we contextualize it. So I say that I'm indefinable. I just happen to be uh, a human, a man, black and Indian who grew up in a, pretty interesting time and an interesting place in America. So, yeah. I love that. You're a human first and you happen to be these things. Right. And as someone personally who never has felt like I really belong in a box, but now is like starting to name that, it's really interesting to hear how others who have such difference baked into who they are also kind of articulate that or communicate that. Yeah, that's lovely. So... I'd like to just dive right in. Um, you've had an incredible past and present, and I know that your world was rocked really early on. You, at the age of 18, you went to prison. And just because this issue of, yeah, mass incarceration is a big topic. I mean, it's been a big topic, but especially with recent events in America, with um, what happened with George Floyd and just all of the racial injustice that has really surfaced. Um, I just want to give like a little reference to center us on this. So um, according to the ACLU, one out of every three black boys born today, this is from the U.S., can expect to go to prison in his lifetime, compared to one out of every 17 white boys, right? That's a very huge, significant gap and numbers don't lie. So I would love to just kind of explore this part of your life and understand at the age of, I don't know what it was, 17 or 18, how did you end up in this, yeah, in, in prison? Right. Um, so it was Halloween night and I was out with a girl and, you know, we we're teenagers, shaving cream, eggs, candy, that kind of thing. And we were walking back towards my house and I saw two other kids around the same age walking towards us. 
and uh, we exchanged uh, eggs and then shaving cream. And then he attacked me and he assaulted me. And in the course of the fight, I fell down into um, glass and he was on top of me hitting me and I'm trying to get him off of me. And he was bigger and heavier than me. So I swung a piece of glass at him and cut him. And he got cut. And then he kept going and I ended up running away. And the police arrested me, gave me a good once over, and then brought me to the station. And only in hindsight do I realize how they completely violated the law. So my face was bloodied, my lip was swollen, on the way to the precinct, they stopped, got Slurpees for themselves and a bag of ice for me to put on my face, napkins to clean myself up, and brought me to the police station to take mug shots. So by the time I got there, I had my cuts kind of cleaned up. So I kind of looked fresh, not just somebody who was beat up by somebody else and then by two grown men. And, um, yeah, they made my bail $100,000. I'm in a single parent household. We're poor. My mother's an immigrant. She's already working two jobs and I couldn't get bailed out for a while until my family pooled resources together. And that was my senior year of high school. So I was in the county jail for a month as a 17 year old and then got released and went back to school and then completed high school, then went on to go to college. And obviously I had um, this charge against me because I was arrested and I was going back and forth to court. And we came to find out because the crime happened when I was 17 years old, that I could be charged as a youthful offender, as a child, not an adult, and that I wouldn't face as much um, jail time, I would possibly be able to get probation or something. And as the court dates progressed, we found out that the person who I was involved in this altercation with, his grandfather was a New York state senator, and that his uncle was a detective and his family was connected politically. So for a first time offender who was in college at the time now, volunteered for uh, at rest homes to help the old folks and all of that and still held a job and was a pretty good upstanding teenager in my community they offered me a plea bargain of four to 12 years and four to 12 years to an 18 year old at that point was like forever and i stood by and stand by what i did somebody was injured However, I was defending myself. And I will tell you, just like anybody else listening, when you feel as if your life is threatened, you will do whatever you need to do for survival. And I was pushed at that early age into a fight or flight survival mode. And I did what I had to do. And I feel terrible about it. While at the same time, I stand by what I did. It's an unfortunate event, but it needed to transpire on some level. So because I stood by what I did, I said that I wanted to take it to trial. And there was a lot of um, illegal things done by the family with the judge to influence the judge. 
right? The judge was already corrupt. You could Google the judge and you'll see like he was brought up on charges and all these other things for being a dirty judge. And uh, I got, I went to trial and I got tried by a jury of my peers. And there's not many other 18 year old black people from my particular socioeconomic background to be called in for jury duty. So this jury of my peers were 11 white people. Out of the people there, uh, a few of them had teenage sons and one black woman. I went to trial. I testified as to what happened and I got convicted. And the judge charged me as an adult and sentenced me to six and a half to 13 years. And um, I'll never forget that day, right? There's two things during my trial that happened. One day I was in the elevator with my lawyer and the district attorney who was prosecuting my case got on the elevator and it was just us three. And he stood behind me and he said, just so you know, I do not have any ax to grind with you. And the door opened and he walked out. And I didn't understood what he, I didn't understand what he meant at the time. Only now do I realize that he was being politically pressured by the family, by the senator, by the detectives, whatever else, and by the judge to go hard at me. And um, there's that. And then uh, I wanna say January 28th, 1998 was my last day of trial. And I was at the courthouse and my best friend at the time came with me, as well as my family, uncles, aunts, grandmother, sister, mother and father. We are not like this broken home, though I didn't grow up with my father as a major presence in my life until later on in life. And the jury um, sequestered themselves to find a verdict. Verdict. And I went outside of the courthouse with my best friend and I was drinking a banana quick and an onion bagel with scallion cream cheese. And I was standing in front of the courthouse with him and we were talking and we were like, so after this, let's go to the mall because I don't have school today. And oh, I need to get a haircut. And the bailiff came out and we were joking around my friends and I, very light spirits because as an 18 year old, this is almost a surreal experience. You do not have the emotional fortitude to process the gravity of the situation that you are in. And of course, your family wants to make it as easy as possible for you. And um, the bailiff came out and said, the jury has found a, has a verdict. So I went upstairs and I smiled at my family and I didn't notice that the Senator and his cronies were sitting in the, audience as well on the plaintiff's side and um, everybody rise as a judge reads the jury's verdict and they found me guilty and in that instance I didn't know what to do and the bailiff they slammed the gavel down and said um, we're going to remand him into custody so I left that day an 18 year old boy and uh, didn't know what I became. Because when I turned around, I looked at my family and I looked at my father and I saw his face 
And my father was a beautiful man, very handsome, very charismatic, brilliant thinker. Not the best dad, but as a, you know. And um, I saw his face and it was powerless. There was no force. He wasn't Melvin. He wasn't Melvin Sr. anymore. And everybody broke down and they took my belt and took me into the back room, into a cell. And I was crying at the time. And I remember the court officer said, stop crying or I'm gonna give you something to cry about. And I said, okay, this is what we're in for, I guess. This is what it's like. And I never came home. I left my mother, my father, my, my sister, my grandmother, my uncles, my aunts, lost their nephew, their son, their grandson. And they didn't, nobody knew what would happen. And um, a month later, the judge called me in and sentenced me to six and a half to 13 years. The maximal penalty that I could have received was seven, seven and a half to 15 years. So he didn't give me the maximal penalty, which would have been an illegal or excessive um, sentence. However, he gave me the most he could possibly give me. And at that time at my sentencing, I had my college professors come in to speak as to my character and who I am as a person. And the judge wouldn't let them speak. He did not care. He, did not, you know, he said, I don't care what you have to say. This is a dastardly evil person, an 18-year-old boy. And um, I went to prison. Well, I went to county jail until they shipped me into upstate New York, the New York State uh, Department of Correctional Systems. And from there, I was there for eight years. So maybe to take a pause, because you shared quite a lot about mm. what led up to that experience. And I'm there's so many things to say right now, but mm. just the, the vividness of being 18 and being an adolescent, right? Who is just starting his life. And then all of a sudden your world changes in a second because of the body you inhabit and because of the systems of oppression that privileges certain colors of body over others. And so to kind of segue into your prison experience, because that, that is something that I want to touch on. You said in a New York Post article in 2015, but I'm going to give you space to say more, but you said something along the lines of um, your experience in prison was like living in the den of iniquity. You see the worst side of humanity. And I guess I, you know, because you do what you do now and you are a medicine man, mm. right? Like your time in prison, I can't even begin to wrap my head around, but maybe I can give you space to comment or share as much as you want about what side of humanity you did see. So I've seen uh, in prison, I've seen murders, murders, not a murder, but people murdered in front of me and watched it happen. I've seen people being violated in ways that a human should not be violated. I've been treated and violated in certain ways that not only with prisoners, 
but by the corrections officers and the staff there and treated ways that uh, humans should not be treated. I saw the depths of depravity and what um, happens when you place a person in an abnormal environment, just how fast they will assimilate and adapt to that. It says that it takes 75% of maximal strain on a muscle for it to grow, right? To be put under 75% of uh, strain, you will change and adapt and evolve. And you see what people turned into, how desensitized they've become, how primal, but then also how centered and how beautiful. One of my friends in prison was in prison since he was 16 years old from Jamaica, killed six people. He had something like 250 something years. He was never going home and I met him and he was 20, 23 and I was 19 at the time. And we were walking outside and I didn't have heavy clothes as yet because my family didn't have a chance to send it to me. And we were walking outside and it was like late fall, early winter, and I had a thin coat on. And we were just talking, yeah, you know, back in Jamaica, blah, 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 blah. And I, he was like, are you cold? And I was like, oh my God, I'm freezing. I can't wait till we go back in. And he took off his coat and gave me his coat but he killed six people, right? You see the real range of a human and what people are capable of doing on both ends and just how extreme it could be. I've met people who you've read about in newspapers who have cooked food. I've sat and cooked food with and played chess with and played cards with and laughed and joked with and still knew that they did these things, right? It's pretty surreal. I sat across from a serial killer in a prison and I was eating a coffee cake and I looked up and I looked up at him and I looked back down and I was like, I know this guy from somewhere, didn't we meet? And I looked back up at him again and I'm like, holy shit, this dude is a serial killer. And he was caught with the bodies, it wasn't like, he was, you know, set up and he was eating farina across from me. And you realize just how monstrous humanity can be and just how beautiful at the same time. And it's placed in front of you every day, right? When you're in a place like prison, you for people forget there's bad people in the world and there's people who do things. Everybody there has done something. There's a few wrongful convictions right? Or they may have been caught with a dime of crack and got sentenced to 10 years under Rockefeller drug laws or something, but they still got caught with a dime of crack and they were doing things. So let's not overlook that. We can still take that into consideration and say that that's excessive and a ridiculous sentence and they shouldn't be there for that long for that. So you're with a lot of bad guys or mm, perceivable bad people and it does something to you genetically it changes you in a way where when you see murders and you see violence every single day, you do develop some form of not only desensitization to life and the harshness of that reality, 
you also develop a kind of heightened hypervigil response to things. Because it's not just like, we're just going to get into a fist fight and somebody's going to break it up. No, that doesn't happen because you can kill me because you're here already for 25 years and you're 20 years old. You're here for your natural life. You've already killed people before. It's quite easy to do things once you've done it at least one time, right? And I've seen that firsthand. And I've also been treated incredibly kindly by corrections officers, by wardens of prisons, of the prison, uh, by civilians who've worked there. So it's kind of a mind fuck because you don't know what to trust. You have to take everybody as an individual while still recognizing that there are certain uh, boundaries and walls between these people. And as you know, from 18 years old to 26, I was molded in a certain kind of way. So, yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I'm taking that in. Mm. It's, it's very deep mm. to go into that kind of psychology. And yeah, there's this, like you were saying something that just stood out to me is saying that when you've witnessed the depravity and you've, you've experienced some of that stuff firsthand, like trauma can really, yeah, alter the DNA epigenetically, but also you build this resilience because your body has to, you don't really have a choice. And, you know, resilience can show up physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And in this um, experience of seeing so many different sides of humanity, and like you were saying, building trust with each person individually because you just don't know what you're going to get sometimes. I mean, maybe there is many things built into this question, but what do you feel like you learned about yourself in that time that really even resonates with you today? Like it, it shaped you into the person that you are today. So what are some of those things or thing that really stands out? For right now and for today, on the spot, just how dynamic I am. Just how dynamic the human experience is. And if you could unattach to the experiences and just look at them objectively as just an experience, you gain a whole other perspective on yourself and your own self-awareness and juxtaposition to the rest of the world and how you interact with it why you do, what you consciously contribute, what you take away from it. It's all the law of reciprocity. So my biggest takeaway right now in this instance, what popped into my mind was just how dynamic my experience has been. And that I realized that my time in prison, seeing those things, learning these people, seeing all of this, experiencing it, was part of my own shamanic training. It allows me to identify with the dark, heavy, dense side of humanity, as well as the light, beautiful, uh, fairer side of humanity as well, that all exists within each person. Given the right set of circumstances, you have no idea what you're capable of doing, the quote unquote bad or the quote unquote good. 
I want to get into that. And I also want to segue into your transition out of prison at age 26. Mm -hmm. So just to set us up, another little ACLU reference. Um, they say that each year, 650,000 men and women um, nationwide in the U.S. return from prison to their communities, yet they face nearly 50,000 laws at every level, federal down to local, that make it difficult to reintegrate and reenter back into society. And I've actually met quite a few people who have come back from prison, but not just in the U.S., other countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's a quality I don't know. There's this like really inspiring quality that I've seen. Maybe mm. that's not the case for everyone, but I would love to hear what it was like to transition out of prison for you. Because at some point, like five years later, you started a successful business in mm. a very short amount of time. Mm. So what was that like leaving? So I'll lead into this, right? I'll tell you how I exited prison. Uh, at, after I served six and a half years, I went to see the parole board. And by that point, I was in college again, paying for it out of my own pocket. Um, I had all kinds of certifications and awards and wardens of other prisons writing the parole board, telling the parole board, like, this is a, this guy's really something special here. He's done his thing. He understands remorse, X, Y, and Z. And the parole board were like, yeah, we reviewed the letters, but uh, obviously you show no remorse for your crime. So we're going to sentence you to another 18 months and gave me 18 more months. And uh, a year and a half later, I went in front of the parole board again and they gave me my walking papers and released me. They shipped me to a facility in Queensborough. And uh, that was like where I would transition to go home. And two days, my release date was December 21st, 2005. On December 19th, 2005, the transitional service parole person called me into their office and said that, yeah, you can't go home. And I was like, what do you mean? And I had, you know, moving back in with my mother, I had a job lined up, all of these other things. And they're like, yeah, this is too close to the victim and his family, and they petitioned the parole board to uh, have you go to a halfway house somewhere else, or you can't be released from prison. Two days before I was going to go home. So I called up my mother and I told her, and of course, that broke her heart. Then I called up my sister, and I said to my sister, Mel, I can't go home. And she's like, what do you mean, Mel? And I told her what happened. And she said, oh, that's fine. Come live with me. And I will find you a job. And I gave the address to the parole officer. He went to the house, spoke to my sister. And they changed my um, address to where I was released. So now, she said this, this to me. I was crying on the phone to her. And I was like, I just served eight years, Mel. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Like, I'm done. I'm done. And I want to go, I don't know Brooklyn. I don't know where you live. I don't know anybody there. I don't know anything, Mel, I'm scared. And she said, I know Melvin, but nobody knows you here. You have no past here. This is the perfect opportunity for you to reinvent yourself. Who are you going to be? And that 
her saying that and she may not even remember her saying that to me because I don't even know if I've ever told her this changed my outlook just like that and I was excited because I have no backstory I can make up a backstory if I want to I could be anybody and I went uh, to her house and when I walked out of the door of the prison my father mother and father were there and they were crying and my father hugged me and he pulled me towards him and he said, don't turn around. And um, we walked to the car. That was my Jeep that I used to drive. And he said, do you want to drive, son? And I said, I haven't drove in a long time, dad, I'm scared. And he was like, I'll drive. And he drove me to my sister's house. And I went up the steps and I knocked on the door and she opened the door and screamed. And she jumped on me like a spider monkey. And she said, never again. Never again. And um, she found me a job, sweeping the floors, mopping, cleaning the bathrooms, the locker rooms at a gym. And um, I remember I used to carry a, a subway map to know where I was going. And I would go to the gym, sweep the floors, mop, clean, do the front desk stuff. And that was my job and I would just go home. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to interact. And um, I used to go to this deli around the corner from my sister's house every day and I would get a sandwich. And um, you know, the guy at the front desk kind of knew me, Melvin, oh yeah. And one day I was getting the sandwich and I was at the counter and a girl came in and um, she was pretty and she looked at me and I looked at her and was like, oh, okay, my sandwich. And the guy behind the counter was like, you know, giving me the eye, like, dude, like she's into you. And um, she was like, hey, uh, are you from around here? And I was like, no, very standoffish. And she was like, oh, um, I've never seen you before. I was like, probably not. And I was just so anxious internally because I didn't have a girlfriend in prison. Right. You can't look at the female corrections officers and, you know, like, the, you, know, you know how that goes. And I had no experience dealing with women. And uh, I remember like he was like, OK, the sandwich. And I was like, OK, here. And just threw the money on the counter and grabbed the sandwich and the soda and just like ran out of the deli and went home and told my sister and brother, my brother-in-law at the time about it. Let me correct myself. My brother-in-law is my brother. He's like my big brother. I've known him since I was 13. And I love him like my brother. He is my brother. And um, yeah, I told them and they were like, oh man, like it's, it's okay, Mel. Like, you know, but how do you approach somebody with that PTSD or that post-incarceration syndrome? You know, it's like, how do you open that up and really speak about it and be like, dude, you could take a shower longer than five minutes. Yeah, we cooked. You don't have to ask for more food. Hey, you can come out of your room. We're in the living room watching television. You know? Hey, Mel, you don't have to uh, wash your clothes in the shower. Uh, you could put them in the laundry basket. It's these little subtle things that people take for granted, right? That I would have like a, an empty bottle filled with water in my room. And like, hey, you could just come and use the faucet. And it's learning how to grocery shop 
at the gym that I worked at, it was a private gym and it was a pretty high-end gym. Like, you know, it was no memberships. It was just private, like private trainers, private clients. So I didn't really have much contact with the people, the trainers. Yeah. And I was in prison. So I had a good build. I worked out a lot. And, um, I remember the, I used to make $90 a week. That was it. And to me, I was like 90 bucks, but she would write me a check and I didn't have a bank account. So I would give my check to my sister and say, hey Mel, could you cash this for me? And I didn't know that my sister didn't cash a $90 check, right? So she waited like maybe like a month and then cashed all four. And my boss who was paying me was like, dude, why, why did you wait so long to cash the checks? And I was like, oh, I didn't know. And she was angry at me for it. And I was like, I, I didn't know. And then the next week she paid me, she was like, go deposit it now at the bank. And I went to Washington Mutual Bank. And I went to the teller and I, this is a 26 year old man, but an 18 year old emotionally. That's my scope of the world. I don't know. And I went to the bank and I went to the teller and I was like, I need to cash this check. And she was like, do you have an account here? I was like, no. She's like, then you can't cash this check here. This isn't a check cashing place. What's wrong with you? And she was so sharp with me. And I'm used to when people get sharp with me who aren't authority for me to get sharp with them and snap back because I feel threatened. Because all I know is you get sharp with me, you may try to cut me. You may have a knife. You may, I don't know. You may throw that cup of hot cacao on me. I don't know because I was scared consistently in this fear-based response and I got jittery and the bank manager, the branch manager came over to me. He was an older chubby white dude and he saw my reaction. He was like, Hey, Hey man, Hey, come here, come here. And I was like, yeah, what's up? And he was like, come, come sit, sit at my desk. And I sat down and he's like, what's up? And I was like, I, I don't know why she's talking to me like that. Like, what, what, what's wrong with it? And he was like, do you want some water? Like, take it easy. He saw I was kind of frantic and I looked like I was going to snap. And he was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't have a fucking account here. And I didn't know I needed an account to cash a check. And he was like, okay, well, where do you have an account? And I was like, I don't, I don't have one. And he was like, you have one now. And he stood up and shook my hand and he's like, my name's so-and-so do you have an ID so we can open up a bank account? And I was like, yeah. And he walked me through the whole process, the bank manager. And then he was like, let me ask you, because when I do this credit check and everything on you, and you say you're 26 and your ID says that you're 26, you don't have a past. There's no credit history of you. Do you where did you come from? And I was like, I was in prison. And he was like, oh, okay, okay, man. And he was so kind to me. And he gave me like the withdraw the deposit form and he filled it out for me. And he's like, put that in your wallet. So now every time you deposit a check, just copy this and put that in. And that's how I learned how to deposit a check because they don't teach you that shit in prison. They don't teach you about the emotional responses that you have internally in those triggers, that ability to snap internally and dive into that adrenal response and have it controlled to unleash fury. 
there's a book called All God's Children written by Fox Butterfield, and it speaks about this guy, Willie Boskett. Willie Boskett's been in like uh, solitary confinement for like 100 years, right? Black dude, New York State prison system. He has this crazy response to authority. The point of this thing is that they studied his lineage, his genetic lineage, and they saw that the, man, the black men in his family were either murdered, in prison, convicted of crimes. They were all uh, kind of violent dudes. And then they did a deeper study and they showed that African-Americans, not just global black people, but African-Americans especially, have a higher propensity towards diabetes, heart attacks, high blood pressure, not only because of the diet, but because of our chemistry and our stress responses to things that it's been bred into us, right? Higher levels, I think, of factor 54 allow me to, one, maintain muscle mass like this and snap and be able to flip tables over and fight and go through all these things and then being conditioned by eight years of seeing these things every day. Every day somebody's getting stabbed or raped or killed or who knows, committing suicide. And you hear about it and you're just like, oh shit, I knew that dude, he was all right. I think we played chess last week. It's, it's like this surreal experience. So yeah. Oh, um, so yeah, there's so much ground to cover. That moment of learning for the first time that there are kind people in the world and people who wanna help you Whatever your past has been, um, that story just made me realize, wow, that person had a lot of compassion. And that was probably a huge moment where your body actually learned, ah, okay, some trust is opening right now. Let's continue to build that. And so eventually you became successful five years later. And I want to get to the part about ayahuasca and plant oh, yeah. medicine. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, sure. And you say at some point, I think this is on your website, about your first experience, quote, I felt as if my soul had been ripped out of my body for me to examine. I could look at myself in a truly objective way, clear of any judgments or attachments to what I saw. I knew as I sat in that yurt and drank that brew that my life would never be the same. So, you know, you've been in prison, you've come out, you've learned what it's, you caught up, caught up emotionally maybe in a lot of ways. And one would think. One would think, right? And you you launch this business at a certain point, you left, and you you end up in a yurt drinking ayahuasca and having this big realization. I know I'm skipping a lot of mm -hmm. things, but uh, when you drank that first brew, after having the experiences that you've had, I can imagine that was probably a very intense, I don't even know if there's a word to describe that experience, but can you kind of walk us through what did you see? Because mm. you've done a lot of ceremonies, so it's probably hard to uh, I, um, reflect on all of them. Yeah, I have like maybe 300 and something, 350, something like that. Between 350, 400 ceremonies now. Wow. Uh, mm. And I say that to say that there is just one ceremony. It's just a continuation of the original one. Each one just picks up right where the last one left off. Because this is just one story. There's just different parts of the story, right? Um, yeah. So I remember 
I was, by the time I went to Peru, like I've already traveled around the world, done this. I was making money. Like I was a professional. I had degrees. All of these things, I reinvented myself. And I also disempowered myself by chasing something outside of myself. I got caught up in like a New York kind of lifestyle. I lived in a penthouse in Chelsea, fly clothes, expensive things, being flown places. I was a, I'm good at what I do. And um, I went into the yurt and there were like, you know, six other people and they were going around asking them why they were there. And these were deep things like, you know, people working on their issues with their mother, uh, seizures. When it came to me, I was like, I'm just curious about consciousness. I want to see what's going on. I'm fine. I don't have any issues. I was quite, uh, I won't say arrogant, but I will say ignorant to myself. So the shaman and the facilitator's like, okay, okay, cool. And they kind of had a smirk on their face because it was like they saw what I was completely blind to. I wouldn't even entertain if you were like, Mel, I think you have emotional issues or anything. What do you mean? You're just soft. Like that was like my response. So I drank the medicine and within like 20 minutes, it hit me like a sledgehammer. And I started to see my first vision that I had. I had my eyes open and I was looking because it was, um, there was a candle where the shaman and his facilitators were at in the yurt and in the circle. And I was like, there's something standing over the shaman. There's somebody or something there. They don't even know what's going on right now. I, what is this? And I started to see all these things and I was like this must just be a hallucination this is like you know yeah you know this is like acid or something like that and then I couldn't sit up and I couldn't keep my eyes open and I had to lay down and I started to purge and um I was big like big like you'd look at me and be like oh okay you work out huh <laughs> and I must have purged five pounds off of me and I was just vomiting, going to the bathroom. And the whole time I was seeing myself as a child. And I was seeing certain things that happened to me and me almost making this kind of like contract that I'm not going to be bullied again. If you call me that again, I'm going to show you what I can do to you. Oh, that hurt my feelings. But feelings are for people who don't know how to operate in the world. I'm far more logical. I'm far more intelligent. And I saw like these two parts of myself arguing and I saw the, a little boy version of myself just crying. And then it just hit me. I was like, wait a minute. I think that there's something not right about me. I think that I have some deep suppressed shit that's actually holding me back. And then I started crying and I haven't cried at that point since my father died. Yeah, I, I didn't cry. And I just wept and purged and saw all of these. Only thing I could describe it as is past life experiences and all of this non-linear, multi-dimensional things happening to me. And I am science-based. Like I'm, I was very rigid in my thinking. Like I read a lot. I went to college full-time and worked full-time and paid for it myself when I got out of prison because I also have ambition and drive and motivations to accomplish something. I have a vision of who I am and what I want out of life. And anyway, um, it was incredible, but I didn't know what to make of it. 
And the next morning, I went to the shaman early in the morning, like 7 a.m. And I was like, hey, this is what I saw. And he was with the facilitators, and I started telling them that. And they were like, would you say it again? And I was like, I saw this standing over you. And then I saw this woman, and this woman was saying something. Do you want to know what she said? And they're like, yeah. And I started to tell the person what the woman said, and I remembered it. And he was like, that's my grandmother. And I was like, what? Get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm still like very like, you guys gave me some drugs and I was tripping out and I was hallucinating all night and this is what I saw. And I started telling each person everything. And then I started telling them what I saw for myself and what I felt. And then the shaman said, he was like, what do you do? What is your profession? And I was like, I'm a personal trainer and I'm a, a occupational therapist, licensed massage therapist. And he was like, yeah, no, you're not any of those things. You're one of us. And I invite you to come live here and study the path. This is your true path, Melvin. And I was like, yeah, no. Are you crazy? You don't even have a pizza place out here. Like, I can't buy weed. Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't even have cell reception here. Like, because it's 4,000 meters on top of a mountain in Peru. And uh, they kind of giggled at it. I'm like, okay. And they started me on a tobacco diet that day. And I didn't know. I didn't know. You know, this is my first rodeo. They're just like, drink this. And I'm like, and started vomiting. And I'm like, good, okay, good. Okay, go lay down. And they started initiating me during my first retreat. And as each journey went on, I started to see more and more and more about myself. And when I went there, I weighed maybe 185 pounds. In 10 days, when I left, I came back to New York, I weighed 160 pounds. I lost 15 pounds of fear, of anxiety, of rage, of self-pity, of armor, of all of these things, as well as fat, muscled ass, all of those things. And when I came back to New York and my friends saw me, they were like, what the hell happened to you? We need to go get food back in you and get you back into the gym. And I was like, no, no, I don't need that. And like, what do you mean? And I was like, something's different. I don't know. I just don't feel the same. And they would say, like, you have a softness to you. You're still Mel, but there's something else to you, a little bit lighter. You're not as intense or as sharp. And um, I took that as a compliment. And I started to go deeper into my ancestral practices. I was raised Hindu. I know about Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma. I've read the Vedas. I've read the Upanishads. I've read the Mahabharata. I've read the Ramayana. And there was something about me that, like, I guess, like, as a teenager, because I wasn't in the typical American kind of thing that was ashamed of that, where now I'm like, uh, that gives me peace. I think I want to connect with that again. And I went back into the meditation, back into the ritual of it all to reconnect with my roots on some level. And it wasn't even a conscious thing. To me, it was like, I need peace. I need to stay calm. And smelling Palo Santo and doing certain things reminds me of that, the mantras, the songs, 
I remember singing these songs as a child. And as soon as I hear the mantra, I could sing it. And I can tell you what it means because I remember my grandmother doing the Gayatri prayer with me. And I just thought it was a prayer. Like, I was just like, oh yeah, like how people pray to white Jesus at nighttime. Like, I was like, this is just a prayer until I get older. And I'm like, this is the Gayatri mantra. This is, I know exactly what they're saying in this. Granny taught me this. Oh, and the Om Triambakam. Oh, that's Three-Eyed Shiva. And I just, because I remember the stories. And it was just this reconnection on a deeper level and a different space within my own heart that uh, I dove into. And then, yeah. It's, um, having done 350 plus ceremonies and mm -hmm. you say it's all just a building on of the same story and really just like letting go more than gaining anything. You have to let go to really come back to exactly. who you are um, without the constructs, without society trying to put labels on you, without you know, all those other forces that try to command you or mine your attention in some other way that's not actually serving you. Right. So at some point, the shamans were like, okay, you're one of us, and you heeded that call, right? You, right. you heeded that call, and you eventually left New York for good. You, you left uh, Peru, and then you came here, right? Right. What made you come to Bali? Uh, places? Just I wanted to go to Asia, right? Because the, the medicine, I would say my experience with the medicine and living in that path showed me that this isn't a path of spirituality. People believe spirituality to be the path. This isn't the path of shamanism. People believe that they're on the path of the shaman or anything else. I found that those are constructs as well. The only path that I'm on is the path of self-mastery. And I master myself through service and being present with myself. And that's what the medicine brought me to ultimately. So how I ended up in Asia is because I always wanted to come to Asia. And there is no time like the present to do those things that you want to do because I have seen, do you know millions of people woke up, went to bed last night with a plan for today and millions of them never woke up. They didn't fulfill that plan for the next day, right? Mm -hmm. Marcus Aurelius says as humans, we know that our lives are finite yet we act as if they're not. Do not act as if they're not, right? Jean-Paul Sartre, right, the father of existentialism said, there is, let us not waste any of our time. Though there may be more beautiful ones, this one is ours. And the reason why my website is The Evolutionist is that I am not The Evolutionist. The Evolutionist is a concept, it's an idea that we are greater, but we seek greatness and we force adaptation upon ourselves in order for us to grow and to actualize ourselves. So I always wanted to come to Asia. So I came to Asia and I didn't have a plan. I said, I wanna to come to Bali. I wanna see the island of the gods. I wanna see how their form of Hinduism jives with what I grew up with and learn the people and experience this. And I wanna to go to Thailand. And I want to go to Vietnam, and I want to go to Cambodia, and I want to go to Laos, and I want to go to China. I want to see the world. I will figure it out. The way that humans are domesticated now, we become slaves under conspicuous consumption.
to some system or this idea of success or what it is, this external metric in which we judge ourselves against that leads to the low self-esteem and the lack of self-worth and all these other things and the reasons why people come to see me. Because I am not only a shamanic medicine practitioner, but I'm also a person who's a guide, who helps guide you into yourself. And you have to, Krishnamurti says, do not seek enlightenment unless you seek it unless you seek a lake as if a man's whose hair is on fire. Because that's, you're compelled to keep going deeper into your own journey. So for me, I knew that for thousands of years before we were domesticated, people would just figure it out. I simplified my life because I recognized that the things that I accumulated in New York, the muscle mass, the Prada clothes, Gucci, all of this, everything was mm, spot on tailored my house was not decorated. My house was curated because I'm also into architecture, art, and design. Mm. So everything was very specific because that was part of my armor as well because I defined myself by my material possessions because I was taught that if you don't have, you ain't shit. And I know plenty of ain't shit people who have a lot more than the majority of the world. And I let that go. So I recognize what I need versus what I want. And I simplified and edited my life. And as a result, it afforded me the opportunity, the hard work and everything afforded me the opportunity to accumulate some money so I could move around and travel and figure out what I need. What is my true purpose in life? Because we could say along the lines of existentialism that life is meaningless until we actualize our own meaning. And once we find the meaning in our life, then we have a purpose. And that purpose leads to our intentional living. Mm. And through that purpose is where our conscious interaction with the outside world comes from when we live in our purpose. Mm. So I have letters after my name and papers that say I memorize information really well. And I've been told that I'm smart and I'm good at science, good at this, all these other things. What do I do? I'm a servant. You offered me water, and I got up and got my own and then offered you. Do you need water? Do you need water? Because that's my purpose in life, to be of service. I've just accumulated a lot of different tools to be a better servant. So if you have an injury, I could treat your injury. If there's a psycho-spiritual distortion, I could work with that. If you need some personal development, business coaching, I built my own business and developed myself. I am self-made. I help you with that. Because all of those things that we choose to define ourselves with those titles don't mean shit if I take them away. If I take it all away, who are you? It's so interesting because we live in a society and of course East and West are different, but we do live in a society or humanity where we're valued more for what we do than for who we are. Mm. People meet, it's like, hey, what do you do? There's an evaluation that may be going on. Right. And there's an evaluation based on a certain construct, based on certain systems of oppression that have conditioned our minds to really judge people and put them in boxes based on, right, what they do, how much money they make, the color of their skin, right? And it's, um, it's really beautiful to look through life in the lens of how can I be of service? Because by being in service, you are showing up in who you are. Right, You are valuing who you are and how you can show up and continue to show up in the only way that you can, Right, that no one else can. That's why you're here. 
right? But it's so easy to forget that when we live in a, in a system that teaches us otherwise. So it is about showing up in practice and building that trust with ourselves that that's okay. It's okay to, to exist in life like that and to continue to expand that, that experience so that others can feel that way too. Exactly. And um, I do want to ask you, and the first, the first question I asked you was about, you know, how do you identify yourself? And I, sure. I loved that you uh, grounded yourself. I'm a human. It happens to be da-da-da. And as a person of color, I like to, you know, usually bring this aspect of the conversation around what happened with George Floyd during COVID. Mm. And I know that George Floyd is one of many people who have been killed unjustly and who have lost a precious life due to systems of oppression. And um, yeah, you know, as a person of color in this part of the world, I'm sure that you have your own unique experience of how people relate to you or not, you know? And how was it for you when he he was murdered and this whole racial injustice conversation came to the fore? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how your experience was because for some, I think it was like really hard hitting. It was the first time they really kind of woke up and thought, oh man, you know, this isn't going away, mm-hmm. you know, and government's not going to fix it. This is a humanity issue. This is a human's mm-hmm. rights issue to really look at what's going on and why these patterns are surfacing, you know, specifically in the United States. I think it's a very particular history than, for example, Indonesia, but still being a person of color in the world, you know, this, this incident, especially during COVID, I think has really created very strong ripple effects and I would just love to know um, what your experience was like when that happened. Mm. If that was something that you were really, I don't know, putting your attention into. Mm. Uh, it was hard, uh, right? It said that you could ignore reality, but you could not ignore the consequences of you ignoring reality. This is a time where um, I can watch George Floyd being murdered on Instagram and on YouTube, right? Um only because it's being televised now and we're just in the space of uh, the information age or the age of the algorithm. I'm, I was outraged when I saw it while at the same time, like, um, ho-hum, this is what happens. People are up in arms about it, but this has been happening. Hundreds of years this has been happening. But now, I guess because people are locked down, they're more exposed to it or whatever agenda is being pushed is coming to play now. But for me, as a person who's been victimized by the police, I am not a victim. I don't wear that. That's one of the few, (laughs) I don't wear that hat. I hold myself accountable Um, and shit happens, but I don't, uh, I saw it and of course I was outraged and I hoped that something would be done because it's like a global issue. Like people all over the world are outraged about it. But I think that in this kind of blitzkrieg of sensationalism in the world, our attention is pulled in so many different directions that we go through analysis paralysis and we face, at this point, digital dementia. So these ideas, these things are out there, but what has really happened? People have rioted. 
there's been, you know, talks and people have become famous on Instagram and social media because of their activist outreach and all of that. But what really changed? What really changed? Nothing. Nothing. I'm a results-driven person. We can pontificate till we're blue in the face about how to do X, Y, and Z. But if there are no actionable steps that are grounded, that are realistic, that are measurable, specific and attainable, the whole smart technique, right? I mean, think about it. Nothing's going to happen because these constructs have been in place for so long that people believe that like writing, rioting or acting out is going to change it. Look, I get the rage and the outrage. I've raged. I mean, shit. I have every right to, I think, but I still don't. Because I recognize that nothing good comes out of that because systems do not change from the outside. Systems only change from the inside. So the people who are in power, who have the voice, need to start creating different ways and alternative uh, tactics and plans in order to create some kind of change that we're not going to see overnight. Yeah, and actually what came to mind is a man named Resma Menakam. Have you heard of him by chance? No. Resma Menakam, he is a black clinical psychologist and trauma specialist mm. who's based in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And he was on a podcast called On Being. And it, I guess, viraled. Now there are book clubs um, around his book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathways to Mending the Heart and Soul, something like that. I may be butchering the title, but basically his thesis is this. White supremacy is very intellectual. It's very up here, right? But actually, if we land white body supremacy in the body, that's different. He says that we need to basically take this intellectual concept of like oppression and really resolve it within our nervous systems. And I mean, it's, it's pretty dense, but you know, when you get a psychologist... Um, a black psychologist who who learns about trauma and and brings somatic practice into right this intellectualization of systems of oppression and really says, hey, how can we land this serious inequality within our bodies? Because black bodies are going to experience different trauma than also white bodies who've been the perpetrators, right? And who have been perpetrated, you go way back when, and their bodies are different than law enforcement bodies. And then of course, mm. like. Asian body is going to experience trauma differently as well. Right. And when I heard that, I listened to it twice and now I'm reading the book and it's just like exactly what you're saying. In order for us to make real change, not change that's just like a one-off campaign on social media or like, you know, a great headline or a great feature, but something that has actual long-lasting value and impact, then we have to go inside and do the work on that level. Agreed. And, you know, you're someone who works with the body. You're someone who has experienced so much in your body. And so, you know, I, yeah, I just wanted to mirror that, that like really landed when you said mm -hmm. that, you know, we have to go inside and do that work inside of ourselves and not get points or likes or engagements. It's or, not about that. It's not about that. Right. right? Um, and, you know, I guess, I don't know if you remember this. But there was um, a photo. I don't know if it was fabricated or not, but it was a black man holding a sign that like cops should do ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that image? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And it went around a bunch and I saw it. I didn't know how to digest it, Mm -hmm. but I thought, wait a second, like what would the world actually look like Mm -hmm. if, and I'm not saying all cops are bad, but if, you know, people that live in a more traditional Western society Mm -hmm. who have been caught up in this racial justice conversation, but it's all been very intellectualized and sort of swept under the rug mm-hmm. after the big sensation happens. What mm-hmm. if these people were to do ayahuasca? Uh-huh. What kind of worlds would that be? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I guess just as a thought experiment, like as someone who has sat with so many people in ceremony and has experienced the medicine on such a deep level, what kind of world do you think we would live in if cops or if people that have never really looked within were to do plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, the beauty of your question, posing it to me, is because at this point in the years that I've been doing my work, I have served medicine to people from damn near every walk of life, every age range, 18-year-old to a 69-year-old, right? I serve medicine to people who didn't speak English, to Asian women who didn't speak English, who my friend was interpreting what they were saying. And I found that it's incredible, the traumas, the ideas, the way that we think, the frames, all of these things cross cultures, it's incredible. But I would say this, that if they serve medicine, plant medicine to the Western world, it would be pandemonium. And I'll tell you why, because with maps, organization maps with horizons with all these people and these talking heads that are you know legalizing plant medicine and using ayahuasca for this and that this is just another tactic to make it seem as if this is the silver bullet plant medicine is not the silver bullet if you thought that plant medicine is a silver bullet i'm gonna rain on your parade right now it's not it makes you more of what you already are It gives you access to different parts of yourself for you to make the conscious choice. When we look at the plant medicine world and we can get like into psycho-spiritual or non-linear talk and say like, well, if ayahuasca is the key to breaking through and to become this elevated being or this evolved being, then why are there brujos? Why are there black magicians who use ayahuasca? for nefarious purposes, if we believe in that, because you cannot just believe in the love and light and then not recognize the other polarized side of that, right? Let us not do that. So then why? And it's because of guidance, of integration, of set and setting. And it's having the people who have a background in science and all that stuff to be able to minister the human condition but then somebody who's also trained in traditional shamanism understands non-linear space or multidimensional space, the journey space, who could bridge the gap between the two. Because our idea of this kind of work is that we enter into non-linear space with suspension of the median prefrontal cortex where our ego resides, right? We suspend that so we can go deeper into our own space to start going through the archives, to go on the journey of psychology. The only thing you do is open it up. It doesn't change you. Nothing changes until you make that conscious choice on who you want to be, right? It gives you all of these quantum probabilities or you could just keep being who you are and doing what you do. 
Because I can tell you, you are who you are and you do what you do because it's easy and it makes you feel good, right? When the doctor speaks about trauma stored in the body, Bessel van der Kolk wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score, right? It's amazing. I knew that years ago. I knew it years ago because it's obvious that our consciousness is held in our physical bodies. You could look at me almost and there's something that you could feel and read off of me. The way that I sit, the way that I move my hands, my level of engagement, all of those things, right? Because that's a direct link to consciously what's going on internally, right? So we could look at somebody and see somebody who's defeated because of their posture. That's the body keeping the score. This person was beaten their whole life. They haven't won yet. And it's held in their fascia, in their neural matrix, in motor receptors, in their nervous system. Okay, cool, we recognize that, but how do you break past that? You need both sides. You need somebody who understands physiologically what's going on as well as psycho-spiritually what's going on and bridge the gap. Because I can tell you now, right, if I picked up this glass and smashed it on the floor, if I pick up this glass and smash it on the floor, if I pick it up and just choose to smash it on the floor, right, I just said that three times, you're like, he might smash that glass. I'll smash it and you'll still jump. Intellectually, I told you I was going to smash it. You should have been prepared. Then why does your body react? Because there's a disconnect between the two. Because I could affect you emotionally and physiologically from an external stimuli. So there's no separation between any of these fields. So if I was physically assaulted, mentally, emotionally, and psycho-spiritually, my body's going to hold on to that because our body creates pathways to reconnect and to keep itself safe. And we build it all the time. I used to train dogs and bomb sniffing dogs for the ATF when I was in prison, right? Because they were cute little puppies. So these beautiful little puppies, right? You couldn't say no to, you couldn't hit, you couldn't yell at, because these are like $30,000 dogs. So I would go, I'd have the doggy for a week and he lives with me in my cell. And I tell him when to poo, when to eat, all of these things, so cute. But I couldn't pick him up and kiss him and show him love and affection because these are dogs that shouldn't be pet because they're service dogs, right? So the, the dude who ran the program would come and he'd have all of us in the room with our dogs. It'd be like 10 dudes with puppies. And he would go to each dog and he'd be like, no, no, no. And he would do this and wave his finger at it and say no. And if the dog flinched, then he knew that you hit it because it's a learned condition, right? It's learned behavior. A dog won't naturally flinch if you do this. If you pet the dog a lot and you do this, he might kiss your finger. Or he may just, if he looks at you, he's like, I don't understand what that is. Because all of our postural distortions, the way that we move our head, eye contact, all of those things are learned mechanisms from external stimuli. That's how our body copes. And it's no longer conscious. Because all the shit that happened to you in your life, you can't hold in your conscious mind. It's in the subconscious. Then it goes down into the unconscious. And that unconscious realm, ooh, that's gonna take a lot of psychology to really unlock that. But even when you unlock it, it's just potential because it's just awareness. All right, yeah, so I'm aware of this, right? I smoke, I'm aware that smoking's bad for you. Nothing's gonna change until I stop and make the conscious choice to. That's when the potential becomes kinetic. That's when the knowledge becomes wisdom because we got to an understanding of it. So I say all of those things to say, without the right guidance, right, 
and we give people DMT or ayahuasca and things like that, it would be mayhem and pandemonium because I know a lot of people who work with plant medicine and who call themselves shamans and everything else who are super narcissistic, damn near sociopaths. Because when you have, when you're serving people medicine for years and they're coming to your retreat center or they're coming to your sound bath where you're serving this too, they praise you and they praise you and they praise you and you're like, oh my God, Tiffany, you healed me, you saved me. You may start to believe that. And then that's even more insidious. So there's always a system of checks and balances. So I say that to say, like, to like, it would be helpful if we had people who can hold that space and guide while at the same time we could err on the side of pandemonium as well. But it would be an interesting experiment either way. And right, it's like you need the, the setting that's held by someone who you can trust, who has the best of intentions and who puts their ego on a shelf and really shows up for whatever needs to arise and wants to arise. But also, it's not like the shaman's just going to fix you and like throw a band-aid and like, okay, be on your merry way. It's like, hey, you need to show up in the right mindset. You need to come with like your truest and clearest intention right. because at the end of the day, you're doing this for yourself. You're doing this to look at and meet you know all parts of yourself and i can right. be there to to guide you and 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 you know provide space right so you you have a lot of really amazing references like i can tell that you are a seeker you're a student of life uh -huh. you like to learn and mm. um i love that you are very much in your body but like you you touch on all the levels so you know, just kind of looking at this alt-normal reality that we live in that is just, mm. wow, you know, it's a different time. There yeah. was a time before COVID, there's a time mm -hmm. after. And, you know, during this time, I guess, how, what practices or rituals have helped you stay grounded in your most authentic self physically, mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Right. Just to give someone an inside lens into yeah. what's it like to be you. So one of my most powerful practices that I do every day are my intentions for the day. And I have logistical things. Have to meet Tiffany. Have to meet Paul. Need to drive here. Do the laundry. Random. Those aren't intentions. Those are tasks. Right? And we draw the distinction between the two. That is a task that needs to be done. What is your intention? And my intentions, I write my intentions down daily. And I carry two books with me, right? Moleskine, that's man-made. Oh, this is machine-made, right? This is my business. This is my coaching clients. This is all of business stuff. I keep that in the same bag. This is my journal, and this is my intentions. And I write down my intentions every day, right? Mm -hmm. This is handmade. This is on banana leaf. This is more natural, but it's written with the same pen, right? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm getting at here, <laughs> right? I'm feeling it. The physical cue of my life and who I am. I need that to stay on track. This helps keep me on track before I get beside myself and caught up with distractions and the mundane of life. Intentions are very important and my intentions every day honor myself. Make at least one person seen and heard 
make that connection with somebody different, somebody new every day. Exercise kindness, exercise even handedness, exercise gratitude. So how do I do that now? Yeah, those are beautiful philosophical things. I write them down every day. That's why the book has all of these words on each page, right? Okay, so what do I do? Okay, cool, now honor yourself. What does that look like? Aside from the basic self-care stuff of showering and all of those other things, I work out because I honor this vessel. I fuel it with things that it's useful with because I know that there's millions of people that wish they could do what we do. We can jump, we could run, we can climb, we could drive motorbikes, all of those things. So I honor myself and I'm present in that, which in turn shows my gratitude to life. And I honor those who can't by that practice. What does it look like to connect with somebody? Put your phone down, get right with the God inside of yourself and look at them in their eyes and speak to them and let them feel that. That's honoring yourself as well because you're honoring your own um, rituals of the day, of that connection that we need as humans between each other, right? 85% of communication is nonverbal. That's why when we go to countries where we don't speak the languages, we gesture. <laughs> I'm like, oh, water, you need a drink, you know? Those kinds of things. Um, I laugh a lot. I laugh a lot and I laugh a lot at myself because that's honoring myself as well. That's honoring this experience. Mm -hmm. To find levity and lightness in things in this time is a blessing because our time is so finite here. Why waste it? So my practice is I write those down. And then at the end of the day, I open that book back up and like my intention was to do this. How did I do this? This is what I did because it brings me, forces me to be present with that and to experience it and to deeply ingrain it. And I see just where those markers are at. You know what, even as kind as I was, I got sharp with this person. Okay, Mel, why did you get sharp? Because it's a time for me to reflect. I got sharp because they said this. Why did you get sharp, Melvin? Because they made me feel insecure. They made me feel dumb. They made me feel not handsome. They made me feel like a little boy. You know you're not, not, you're not that, Melvin, right? No, I'm not. But you are, you acted like that when you were unkind. Course correct and adjust. That's all there in the journal. That's all there. So now I can look back at the metrics. If I look back three months ago and I'm still falling for the same shit, I did, that's either the wrong intention to have or something's not clicking. <laughs> so in this time and how I live my life is by accountability. And my connections with people help me remember where I am in juxtaposition, my vision of what I want my life to be. My daily goals and my intentions lay the foundation for me to get to my vision. Marcus Aurelius said, the world will step aside for the man who knows his direction. Most people do not know their direction. That's why they make small talk like that. Hey, how you doing? What's up? Let's not put a bandaid on a gunshot wound. Let's just cut to the chase. How are you really doing though? What's up? There's none of this kind of, it's felt more. It's not just this bullshit, airy-fairy conversation. I don't really have the bandwidth for that. I have other things. I could be reading or watching something else that's going to sharpen that. So a big thing 
regardless of wherever I'm at, because you know I've been in, in a physical hell plane. I've been on the tops of mountains, glaciers, islands, all these other things, right? I'm still Melvin. I am that, thou art that, tat vam asi. That book, my writings, all of those things help keep me on track with that. Because the only thing that I really have dominion over is this, myself. I cannot control the outside world. And most people try to control the outside world because of a lack of security, because of a lack of direction. My security and direction comes in here. I write it out myself. So it's accountable practices and stoicism. I love that. And being in Bali during these COVID times, these alt-normal times, can you express how being here out of all places, I mean, we can't know because we're not anywhere else right now, but here, but how has being in Bali this time in your life helped you build that strength, that activism, that self-accountability that you continuously grow every day? Maybe you mm -hmm. can even frame it as like a, a love letter to Bali or just mm -hmm. what you are appreciative of. Bali really forces that look in the mirror at yourself. And it really shows you, you will get what you put in. It's the ultimate law of reciprocity here. During this time, as I go deeper into my own journey of mastery of myself, Bali has this abundance of everything if we know what we're looking for. And for me, it has provided me with incredible experiences and opportunities I did not think were possible here. It allowed me to be held because for a big part of my life, I relied on my yang energy, that kind of lingam kind of just get it done, that New York energy, where no, you can't bring that here. You bring that here, you're gonna be miserable. This is the mirror to look and why you do that and it's afforded me that opportunity to refine myself in a different kind of way. And um, I'm eternally grateful for my experiences in Bali, for the people that I've interacted with. And um, it's just a beautiful place. It's like down any random little alley is like this whole beautiful community. And it's like, oh wow, I never made this turn. So yeah, it's, um, it's awesome. It's a place that I've definitely been able to manifest a lot and to find my new direction. We'll have to have you on the show another time to talk about this new direction. No, oh, thank you. To close, can you leave the audience with a message or a question to reflect on beyond this conversation? Just some piece of wisdom or something that you really would love to impart from the experiences that you've been able to create and experience in your life? If I took away, or if somebody took away all your money, all those pieces of paper that say you could, you're good at doing this and that you're good at memorizing information, all your fancy clothes, or the profession, all of those labels and those things, I wonder who you are, who you will be. Are you still that person or are you defined by those things? There's a beautiful book, Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. I think we spoke on that, we mentioned that, right? Yeah, we did, please. Yeah, and sure. um, in that book, oof, it's a powerful book. You'll read it in a day, it's super short, but it's a powerful read in a tiny book. 
about our true will to meaning. Because ultimately, that's why we do what we do. We just may not even be cognizant of it. We accumulate all of these things to fulfill something in us because we want to be perceived a certain way because we are not that. You are becoming what you already are. Can you get in front of that and really direct it? In Hamlet, there is that saying, to thine own self be true. Everything that I said thus far, you can sum up with that. Know thyself. Thank you so much for, wow. I feel like you've lived so many lives. No, as do I. Yeah. As do I. Lots of lifetimes. It's, mm. it's, um, it's so inspiring, right? Because you're, you're showing the impossible that you can fulfill all the different multifaceted parts of self and that you are really capable of anything, mm. right? Um, and yeah, I just thank you for showing up to do the work that you do, mm. all of the resilience that you've built in all these moments of life where you could have just given up, where you could have just played small or stayed in a victim mentality, but instead you, you took the exact, exact opposite path and really, you know, persevered. Mm. Um, and yeah, that takes a lot of courage. And I think there's so much to really learn from that. So thank you so much for, for sharing your story. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what's, what's next for you. Thank you for having me. And um, it's the law of reciprocity. So yeah, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, we'll include all of Mel's um, information to stay connected in the show notes. And yeah, stay tuned for next week's episode. The Alt Normal. Thanks for tuning in to The Alt Normal. I'm your host, Tiffany Wen, and this show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of dig, seed, grow.